Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Jacques D'Amboise, who died on May 2, 2021, at the age of 88, was a principal dancer for the New York City Ballet from 1953 to his retirement in 1984. I had the privilege of interviewing Jacques D'Amboise on April 6, 2011, while he was on tour for his memoir, I Was a Dancer. My guest is Jacques D'Amboise, whose memoir is titled I Was a Dancer. Jacques D'Amboise was the principal dancer for the New York City Ballet for over 33 years, often called the protege of Georges Balanchine. Jacques D'Amboise, for many years, has been heading the National Dance Institute, which teaches dance to children and young adults all over the world. He's been a choreographer, actor a couple of times, but mostly in the context of dance. He's kind of a legend in the field of dance. This book, I Was a Dancer, is his memoir, but even though it starts and is kind of chronological, what it really is is, in a weird way, a love note to Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein. Yes. If I had to list who were the key people in my life, it's... Lincoln Kirstein, George Balanchine, the teachers that they brought together, my mother and father. Balanchine and Kirstein ran the New York City Ballet for a very, very long time. And the sense I got, you said it directly or indirectly, is that Balanchine was in love with the women dancers and Kirstein with the male dancers. And together, in some way, you had the two sides plus the artistic and the business side, all in two people who were almost one person. I mean, fighting among them. Lincoln Kirstein, six foot four, with ambitions that no one has ever equaled. He wanted to be the czar of all the arts in America and advise the rest of the world. That was his dream. In particular, he had one focus of it, that classical ballet would take root in America and flourish in its next century. It would be the place for classical ballet, which had its roots in France and Russia, and now it was going to be America. And he needed someone. Balanchine was his third choice. He went to Massine, and then he went to Lifa, and then he went to Balanchine. And when Balanchine came, Lincoln, who thought he could run everything, found that he had in Balanchine Mount Everest on his doorstep. And for the rest of his life, he had to work in support of Balanchine. And Balanchine, for his part, could let certain things slide because Lincoln was there, right? Yes. Balanchine was unflappable. As I said, Mount Everest. And he sat on the top and everybody else was below he had no doubts. Lincoln was ridden with doubts, Teutonic plates rubbing together in his brain, making pebbles around there. Lincoln brought him over 
first Lincoln said, oh, we're going to be in Hartford, Connecticut. And Balanchine was ready to turn around and go back. But eventually, they had several companies, three at least. And then World War II came and everything stopped. And then after World War II, two men, Newbold Morrison, oh, I can't remember the other, two great men said, come to city center, we'll give you a home for a dollar a year, and you become the New York City Ballet. And that was 48, 49. At what point did you, Jacques D'Amboise, become affiliated with them? About 48, 49, too. I was at the school, and I danced in children's roles. And then... In 1949, that summer, July 28, I turned 15 and came to start my ballet class at the school. And Balanchine said, you know, maybe you want to become member company, you know, called the ballet. What do you think? So I quit school. I have one year of high school and joined the company. And within a year, I was dancing in Royal Opera House and had tea with the queen. Let's break it down a little bit. In the first ballet that he did after that, did he suddenly point and go, hey, D'Amboise, you're in? Oh, when I came to the School of American Ballet, I was eight. And before I was nine, Lincoln Kirstein had a rich friend that had a, like a, a wooden platform in the bushes out in his farm, New Jersey or somewhere. And he wanted to do a summer, midsummer program. So Balanchine, to please Lincoln, who was getting this guy to give money, right? Balanchine did a little excerpt from Midsummer Night's Dream. I was Puck. I wasn't nine yet, and that was the first time he choreographed for me. And then, of course, he did more ballets later on for me than anybody, really. By the time you said you're in the Corps of the Ballet, you'd already performed for him, so there was no change except to become yeah, kind of a full-time. Yeah, children roles, children roles. Fifteen, you had to act like a professional and be at rehearsal and be every performance and responsible for yourself. And and I went to London. It was only a few years. Uh, what, five years after the end of World War? The bomb buildings were still all around the place. There was rationing. And I was on my own at 15, dancing as a member of the New York City Ballet, eight performances a week. Was it the Apollo role? It was before then that you finally got your first leading uh, role, per uh, se. Well, he gave me different roles. Frederick Ashton came over to do a ballet, and that was the first time I starred on an original work just done for me. Then there were others, other choreographers, Anthony Tudor. But finally, Balanchine in 1957 or something like that revived this ballet Apollo, and he wanted a whole new look. He didn't want gold curls on Apollo with Mount Olympus in the background. He wanted an American boy, and he said it. He said, you know like hair, like grease. I used to put lanolin with my, I had long black hair, lanolin. And he said, simple American boy and all scenery, black and white. And that was a turning point in my life, that role. I'm not a dancer. I don't know dance that well. And here I've got the principal dancer for 33 years, over 33 years with the ballet. Let's pretend for a second that Balanchine has now approached you and said, I want you to play the principal in, you, you can make a ballet or talk about whatever you want. Okay, he says that to you. What happens? How do we get from the moment that he says we're doing that through the steps of his choreography? Does he already know what he's doing down to the fact that you're going on stage? Boy, that is some terrific question. 
Balanchine would take the musical score for the orchestra, let's say 60 instruments, and he would sit up at night and break it all the way down to a piano score with, you know, 10 fingers so that you could play it and hear what the orchestra was like, piano breakdown. So he knew the DNA of the music. Now he would come in to teach. He had no idea of what steps they were going to do. He would say, you know, now with this music and these dances right now, now, that's all I care about. And then right now he would get up and he'd start making up steps, mostly just rhythms with his feet. And you would interpret and begin to put your own jalapeno pepper in and a little spice. And he would look at you. And if he liked it, He'd go on, and if he wanted to change it, he'd say, you know, maybe try this way or that or maybe. And he got so that he so trusted me, and I was so attuned, that he would say, you know, Jacques, here, 32 counts. Make up nice turning step right in place. And then while I would make it up, he would go in the back and choreograph how the corps de ballet would be. Then he would come and say, let me see what you did. And then he'd look at what he did with the court of ballet and what I did, and then he'd say, oh, maybe good, very nice, but half 16 to the right and then change, do 16 to the left, and it would fit better with what he had set up in the background. He comes back and he does those steps. Now, a ballet is how long? It depends. Okay. It can be 15 minutes, can be half an hour. Could be a longer, a full length. Right. Could be generally they're around 30, 35 minutes. Okay, so you've done a few steps in terms of one particular part of the music, and then you move on to the next part and the next part, and the entire process is like that pretty much? Yeah. And of course, after he sketches out with his own feet the rhythms, right. you impose your own arms. If you're working with a ballerina, I would be so attuned that. He would be working with the ballerina, and I would realize from the way he was choreographing and moving with her that I would have to enter from stage right. So when he'd finished, he'd turn around and he said, and now, Jacques, you, and he'd look over and see me. He said, oh, yeah, you come from stage right. I could do that. Most of the dancers could. Susan Farrell, Tanaki Leclerc, Allegra Kent. We were instruments that he had nurtured, and we just were attuned to him. Was there any difference necessarily in how you would approach a different ballerina? Look, you were making love to that ballerina on that stage. The heft of her, the waistline, the weight of her, the sweat of her skin, the way she moved, the way she smelt, the way she... You invented the architecture of the pretzel in the terms of your dance. And he was out front vicariously being you. And that's why all the ballerinas that he cared about, as Allegra Kent said it, he loved us all in varying degrees. And when he'd have his favorites, I was the partner. And he would come back in ecstasy. Oh, oh, you, you were in ionosphere. You were wonderful, blah, 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 right? Listen, Richard, you're looking at the most spoiled person in the world because I was on the contract year-round. I would say to him, hey, Mr. B, I'm going to go do a movie. I'll be gone three months. And he would say, oh, very nice. What movie? Yeah, like this. And I'd just do it. And then he would do a ballet for me. 
I can't believe it. I mean, he'd do a ballet for me, and I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do the premiere. I'm doing a television show in Miami, but I'll do that when I come back. And he let me do anything. And when the question was asked him, why do you let Jacques do what he, whatever he wants? They told me after he died this, the people, they said, Balanchine said, you know, when I was 17, no one could tell me what to do. I am not going to tell Jacques what to do. He will do what he wants, and he will do what he is. Isn't that great? You will do what you are, being you. Was there that much um, jealousy between the members, or did you all get the roles that you needed to get and kind of went, well, if Balanchine says this, he knows best? I told you, I'm spoiled. I did what I wanted. I'm sure people would say, oh, God, it's Jacques again. I would come and say, no, I want rehearsal now, or I'm running my rehearsal over, or I don't want to rehearse today. or I mean, I was such a brat. I can't believe it. And I got away with it. I got away with it because I, he cared about me, I guess. That sounds as if you got away with it also because you, on some in- intuitive level, understood him maybe better than the others. I don't know. Or understood what he was trying to do If he said, I want you to do this, yeah, right, I would do it. But he never did that. He had very good manners. He would say, you know, Jacques, tomorrow Tchaikovsky part of dirt. And, uh, maybe, you know, do you think with Allegra or maybe Melissa or Susanna? Well, what you like? He's asking me. I would say, Mr. B, who do you want? He'd say, oh, well, you know, what do you, what do you like? I'd say, Mr. B, tell me who you want. I don't care. He'd say, oh, well, you know, Melissa could do Swan Lake and, uh, and maybe, uh, oh, maybe Allegra, you know. I don't have anything. In other words, he wanted me to do with Allegra, <laughs> and he wouldn't say it, right? So did you immediately go, oh, sure, Lord, he I'd... wants Allegra. Okay, yes, I want Allegra. I didn't care whoever he wanted. Of course, my favorites were Melissa and Allegra, without a doubt. To this day, I mean, I relish just the thought of how we dance together. Were we lovers? On stage, every performance. Off the stage, Allegra went home to her husband and three children. I went home to my wife and four children. <laughs> Melissa went home to hers and two children. Did Carrie ever get jealous of that feeling? Yes, because Carrie and I met in the ballet, and she was seven years older than me. Why she ever married me, I don't know. You think you can change the guy. He's got bad manners, but he's sweet. If I marry him, I'll teach him how to have good manners. It never works. Anyway, she maybe married me from sympathy, and she thought we would dance together and have a career in maybe two or three years. Well, she got pregnant immediately, and I went off on tour and left her with the baby in her belly and terrified and afraid and And then I left the company to come back for the birth of our son. And then she said, all right, I'm going to get back to dance again. So the baby's there, and she starts getting back, and she's back in again, and she's fighting her way again out of the court of ballet into the solos when little George got cancer of the nose, and the doctors said, rhabdomyosarcoma is not going to survive. And Carrie said, Goodbye to ever dancing again. Goodbye. I want another child. 
Well, luckily, George didn't die, although the cancer came back, and there was a treatment by then that worked. So what did she do? She became one of the New York City Ballet's best photographers and then started a dance class of a bunch of women called Carrie's Mob that still meet. Carrie's dead now two years. And she started that in 1970-something. They're still meeting and doing class together. Amazing. One thing I didn't know about dancers, though I guess my late friend Arlen Wendland, who you had heard about if not met, talked about was that for a dancer, it doesn't matter what level you're on, there are always classes. Of course. You have a limited time. I didn't ski. I didn't do anything. Maybe swim a little. But it was always the ballet. You're early in the morning. You have an hour break, eight shows a week. You're taking your career from Anthony Tudor's rehearsal to Jerome Robbins to Balanchine's new work. For years, there's no other time for anything else but dance. And every day starts with a ballet class. And the ring the day and before performance, you go and you do your warm-up, your ballet class. That's why I didn't like the movies. Seven Bride for Seven Brothers. Okay, all the brothers on the set, right? Ready to go, 9 o'clock. I'd get there at 7.30 so that I would have warmed up and everything. And at 9 o'clock, I'm ready to go. Nobody's there. A stagehand walks in with a cup of coffee, right? I think I'm in the wrong studio. It's not mentioned in the book, but you also were part of a ballet in the movie Carousel. Yeah. Well, that was better because my scene, the choreography was done, the filming, I think it was less than a month. And the shooting was... I remember in three days, and I remember working so hard that I had three sets of costume because you would dance and they'd shoot it. Then they'd say, all right, reload. Meanwhile, my whole outfit had gotten darker from sweat, so they had another costume. I had three sets of costumes, right? And they'd take the one off me and put it up in front of the fan, and when there'd be a break, I'd change because I was working so hard. Each of those takes would have been how long? 10 seconds, 15? Well, you'd do one scene with the camera here. Then you'd do a scene with the camera here. Then you'd do it again. Then something would happen. Oh, wait a minute. One of the lights went out. Reload. Now you'd do it where you had to do your double tours, this one step, on a dime. If you went off an inch or so, the camera, which was set up to cover you, you would would be out of frame. I remember it took 10 takes to do that one. Well, you don't start with that. You start earlier and work your way to it, and then you keep going after so that they can edit. Yeah, that was hard. And And on cement. And I would think that in a ballet where you're on for, as you say, 30, 35 minutes, it must be a high. You kind of become one with the, the ballet that you're doing. And it kind of builds and you stay there. But when you're doing a film and you have to change, go back, redo every 15 seconds. That's right. And then now we're going to do it again. And you'd say, why? And they'd say, oh, well, we're trying it in slow motion now, meaning the film is faster, right? right? Or we want to get an overhead shot. Or we're doing it with close-ups, all right? Well, in a ballet, it's not that way. Five-minute warning curtain going up, you're on. So each performance is your first performance and your last because the next day you don't know 
And also, you've changed, and it's a new audience. And by the way, this is one of the best things that ever happened to me. I'm dancing in London, and I'm doing movements of piano and orchestra, and I'm already in my 40s. And my wife is the photographer. And she says, Jacques, you should get out of that role. And I got on my high horse. What do you mean, Carrie? Right now in New York City Ballet, there isn't another male dancer that can do it as good as I am doing it now. She said, that may be true, but the way you're doing it now is not as good as the memory of the way you did it last month. Your holding pattern that you're in is on its way down. Get out while your memory of how good you were in the role. And I went to Balanchine and I said, who do you want me to teach it to? Then I did that to every role until I was 50, about to be 50. Balanchine had died the year before. And I'm sitting there, Richard, in the wings, waiting to go on to do the last pas de deux with Susan Farrell in this beautiful ballet. And for the first time since seven years old, I thought, I don't want to go on the stage. I don't want to go on the stage. And now the music's getting ready for the entrance and the last dance. And I got up and I said in my head to Balanchine, who had died the year before, Mr. Balanchine, this is for you, the last of the wine with the Paris label. And I went on and I carried at the end Susan Farrell off and we went and bowed and I went to the dressing room. I took off my shoes and put them in the ash can (laughs) and I went down. And at that time, Peter Martins and Jerry Robbins were co-artistic directors. And I said, that's it. I'm finished. And you know what was lucky? I had National Dance Institute, which had started 10 years before. Which just took over. I just went right into it. I put the ballet shoes in the garbage can, and the next morning I'm at PS2 in Henry Street in Chinatown in sneakers teaching 50 children. I'd like to ask you about a few things that you don't quite go into in the book except in a kind of roundabout way. One is sexuality. This mention, of course, Balanchine says about Lincoln Kirstein, who was married. Is homosexual. He only sees boys. Well, that's true. Lincoln also saw the girls, and everything, sure. but he really only cared about the boys. And Balanchine, of course he saw the boys, and they were him, but it was really the girls. The two of them somehow made it work. And in terms of the rest of the company, when we were talking before we went on the air, and I was talking about my friend Arlen in the 1950s, you said that there was a coterie of dancers, gay dancers, and they kind of kept to themselves, but they were closeted. Well, I didn't use the word dancers. There was a whole group of very bright, young, intelligent people that were caught up in the arts, including W.H. Auden, also with dancers. And they had this life. Some of them were bisexual, but others were not. But they had to be undercover. They couldn't come out. And it must have been hard for them. But in the ballet world, they had a freedom because dancers are the least judgmental of anybody in the world. Did you, at that point, know what was going on with them? I mean, Of course. I grew up in a dressing room, and I used to think to myself, you know, it would be nice to be bisexual. I love all people. Wouldn't it be nice to be bisexual? <laughs> I'm not. I always love women. Jacques D'Amboise, according to one site I found, you directed several musicals, not on Broadway, I guess, Roberta, Lady in the Dark, Peter Pan, uh, Choreograph. Where were those? Roberta I did for summer uh, program in okay. uh, 
Long Island, a wonderful production. And then I wanted to prove that I could direct. So I left New York City Ballet without asking Balanchine. Hey, Mr. Balanchine, I'm leaving. And I went and did Roberta, and then I went back. I think it was Trieste the company was in. And then next year, I went to the Kenley Players, which was in Ohio, Summer Theater, and I did Lady in the Dark. And then the following year, I did my own production of Peter Pan. It went all around the place and toured for the whole summer. And then I thought, I know I can do musicals, so I'll devote myself 100% to the ballet. It was a test, a test. I did a, a dance on Broadway in a show. And then I Alley. choreographed Thurber Carnival on Broadway. But just imagine, you're Balanchine's favorite. You're dancing all over the world. You can do what you want. You're morning, noon, and night honing your skills. And I realized I could be a second-rate actor. I'd never be a good singer, but I could be a great ballet dancer. And I had the greatest man in the world helping me. I'd be stupid to do anything else. Then I guess in some sense you were lucky that Chinbone Alley only lasted a month and a half. <laughs> yeah, it was about that. And boy, it was good. Yeah. It was great. Allegra Kent and I in the Vacant Lot Ballet stopped the show, especially on Thursdays. I don't know why Thursdays, but Thursday evening we always stopped the show. Eartha Kidd and, and uh, Eddie Bracken were the stars. In 1961, I think it was the second musical I'd ever, the third musical I ever saw, 61 or 62, was a show called Milk and Honey. And Tommy I Rawl. I never forgot. Tommy Rawl. I never saw anybody jump that high ever in my life. Yeah, Tommy Rawl. Yeah. And boy, he's great. And I have to tell you, Tommy Rawl, I hope he's listening. He lives in Pacific Heights, and he's married to Carol Shymoth, one of the great dramatic ballerinas ever. But she didn't want to do a ballet. She loved to dance, but the ballet and fight for do I do the matinee of Swan Lake and all that. So she said, I want to have couple of kids with Tommy and get him bar mitzvahed and cook spaghetti, and which is what she did. Tommy Rowe was in a lot of movies, and yes. I went looking for all of them just to see him dance because he's just a. Did you know he was an opera singer? And in my book, I, I made a mistake, it, yeah. though. I made a mistake. I said it was Sarah Caldwell. He sang the lead in an opera, the Jongleur de Notre Dame, the uh, jester of the Our Lady of that, right? Which is a medieval tale. And he sang the lead in it. And then he, he was, he's amazing. And in Milk and Honey, one, whatever it is, Tony, Emmy, whatever they give you. And a fabulous dancer, wonderful actor, and a world-class singer. How often can you get those three together? What do you think of dancing today, the choreography you're seeing today? You've got a sore spot. And I'm going to digress. Listen to the way people talk. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of how do they dance today? Well, it's like, you know, they can't have silence. If I want to say to you, Richard, thank you for having me on your show. I don't need to say, you know, Richard, gee, it's great. Thanks. It's like being on your show. It's great. Thanks. You know, what is all this filling in? They don't want to have silence. They come in, they turn on the TV, they go to bed, the TV's on all night, their earphones are full of things. Choreography today is like that. They fill every, every minute, every note with everything, and they're doing something different for every single phrase as if they're afraid the audience may think that they're not inventive enough if they repeat anything. That drives me crazy. 
The choreography is too busy. It strikes me as being not that much different from aerobics. Yes, because there's something called poetry. What is the feeling you're left with after seeing a beautiful ballet? Are you bettered? Does the art form make you come out feeling how wonderful it is to be a human being? I feel bettered. And that's what's missing a lot. Some of the other great choreographers, Broadway choreographers, Fosse, what did you think of the Fosse? The best of the Broadway choreographers, Jack Cole, Jerry Robbins, Bob Fosse, Rod Alexander, Gawa Champion. I mean, I would say them, but Jack Cole was kind of the mother of them all. And then Jerry, of course, who is Mr. Theater himself, and Rod Alexander, the forgotten man of brilliance, and Bob Fosse, who developed a whole style. But he was a Jack Cole person. He came out of Jack Cole. Yeah, they hold it. So did Gwen Verdon, and he was married to Gwen. Jack Cole probably was the great genius of that kind of during the book, when we get into the 50s, you talk a little bit about the McCarthy era, mostly in terms of how people never got over uh, Jerry Robbins. You were very young at the time. How aware were you of the politics of the era in that day and age? 52, 53. What was I? 19, 18, yeah, 19 asking, yeah. years old, right? Completely consumed with ballet and dance and everything. We're on our way in 1952 to Franco, Spain for a month in Barcelona. And everybody's saying, we're going to get so many pesetas to the dollar in this. And Jerry Robbins says, uh, he says to the union meeting, are we going to accept a low, low salary? Well, uh, ABT was just there. I'll ask some of them, and they'll tell me if we can live on 40 pesetas to the dollar or whatever. And then Jerry never came back. And then the company agreed to go to Barcelona. And then we get on the plane to go. And I say, where's Jerry? And I assumed everything was okay. We're getting 40 pesetas at a dollar. Well, we didn't. And when the paycheck came, it was like 20-something pesetas. And I said, where's Jerry? Oh, Jerry stayed back. I said, why? And then they show me the head of the times, indicted. Jerry Robbins named, and he names other people and all this, and everybody vilified him. Zero Mostel wouldn't talk to him. So many people because he had named other, other people. Well, he was, first of all, afraid to go as a communist sympathizer to Franco Spain. Secondly, if he had left the country, he didn't know whether they would let him leave, and if he did leave, would they let him back? And, of course, he was afraid of any kind of taint with homosexuality and this and that. So he played it safe and he named other people and he said, I did this with a belief that the social justice of communism and everything for him, which is true. I never thought anything bad about Jerry in any way for that. What I didn't like about Jerry was the way he manipulated people to get the most out of him, even by hurting them so that they would get angry at him and maybe he could get something out of them. He did that, but Jerry was great. And Jerry should have replaced Balanchine after Balanchine died. Jerry Robbins was the right person. Another subtext that runs through I Was a Dancer, Jacques Demboise, health. Everyone in the company was constantly getting sick. Oh, all the time injured. 
I think I tell you what the day in the life of a dancer is. Right. Forget about tennis or football or anything. Nothing is like what a dancer goes through. At the end of a long three or four month tour, eight shows a week, different theaters, different stages, rehearsals all day long. On the one day off, you did your ballet class, and then you tried to get sightseeing in and go to the museums, to, you know, in Florence or wherever. At the end, my wife laughed about it. She was in the court of ballet on one side of eight girls across the back, and she was on stage left, and she looked across. On the other side was Janie Mason on stage right, and the six dancers between them were in the wings in crutches and bandages and everything. And the curtain came down and we couldn't, the company couldn't have gone on, but it was closing night anyway. Okay, you're 77. What have you had replaced? I mean... You mean an injury? Yeah. You're going to love it. You ready? Artificial knees, broken arches, broken toes, webbed. Can't lift either arm. Left a little better than the right because the biceps have snapped. Just can't lift it. I can't lift this arm. All upper body strength is gone. Okay, I wear that like Napoleon's elite guards wore their medals. That's what you pay to be a dancer. You pay it, and it's worth it. It's worth it. So this will make you laugh. I'm sitting with Misha Berezhnikov, and he was in New York City Ballet. We shared dressing rooms, we shared, right? Performances, everything, and roles. And I said, Misha, how are you doing? Remember when we were in the company and the injuries and the performances and all those beautiful dances? And, right? Oh, my God. Oh, those ballerinas and the roles. And Misha says, I've had six. And I thought, oh, court of ballet girls, principal, who? And he said, no, knee operations. <laughs> and then he said on one leg, what we do for love. When you're looking back at the great dancers and you're looking back at the great male dancers that you could sit there and you could be Balanchine watching them, who comes to mind first? The best male dancers when I was young was Igor Yuskevich and Andrei Glevsky. There was William Dollar and there were others. There were others that were not virtuoso or famous, but a world class. Todd Bolander is one. I write about him. Okay, those are the ones that I knew. Among my peers that were better than me by far, Vladimir Vasiliev in Russia, the best, and Eric Brun, the Danish dancer, the prince of ballet. Those were the two people when I was at my height. In New York City Ballet, wonderful Eddie Valella. Every time I go to see a ballet today and I'm looking at the stage and I see people doing the roles that Eddie did, no matter how good they are, I only see Eddie Valella, right? And the same with Allegra Kent and Susan Farrell and others. So I'm haunted by ghosts. Those dancers, they're the ones that you emulate. That's why it's so important that you have role models that you can inspire you and try to do what they do, and then you become a role model that other people follow what you're doing. It's a, a tradition passed that way. Jacques Dumbois, your baby, is the National, oh, National Dance, Dance Institute. Institute. How many countries do you work out of? We're starting one in Shanghai. We've done exchanges. There are 12 National Dance Institute in this country. The mother is New York City. We've done programs in Bali and Australia and Ireland and France and Russia and, right, even Siberia, right? But those were bringing those children to New York, and then they go back. 
the first one attempting to go and seed and live and be there is the one in Shanghai that's starting this year. What is the purpose of National Dance Suit? Very simple. If I was to ask you, and I will, Richard, when did you finish education? What degree or what? You know? 1975 master's degree philosophy. You hear that? He's got a master's. Now, what if I said, hey, Richard, when did you finish your learning? Never. There you go. Get rid of the word education. Education is like you're taking a syringe and putting something into the brain. You either love it and it sticks or you hate it. You do enough of it to pass the test and then you forget it and hate it. Learning. So how could someone be learned without knowing about science and mathematics, which is so beautiful, and what we call geography, our world, and the planets and astronomy and the universes, and music and dance and poetry and literature. You cannot be considered learned if you don't know that. A poet, Hafiz, in Persia, wrote, the God who knows only four words, not the word no, no, not the word don't, don't, not the words that cause anyone to be less than what they are. No, the God who knows only four words keeps repeating them, keeps repeating them. Come, dance with me. Come, dance with me. Come, dance with me. Doesn't that sum it up? How can you be angry or fighting with anybody when they're in your arms and you're waltzing? That's a poem that sums up a way to live, the way to act. How could you better say that? How can anybody grow up without it? So I started National Dance Institute to go into schools, the ring school, to have children learn about the arts, poetry, literature, thing, using dance as a catalyst or the doorway. That's what it is. Did you see the movie Black Swan? Yeah. I went to see it and I didn't like it. And I didn't like it. I got angry at it because I thought of it as a ballet film. It's not. It's a psychological thriller about obsession. It could be a hockey player who wants to beat a goalie and he thinks everybody's against him and he imagines that his boss is beating him with a hockey stick, And right? I mean, of course she didn't dance with a shard of glass in her. Was the mother from hell the real mother? It's obsession carried to such a degree that it's a horror and a thriller. If you look at it that way, it's great. And what about Herbert Ross's turning point? Wonderful. Oh, my <laughs> God. And Leslie Brown, that beautiful dancer that danced with Misha. And it's based, by the way, on a, a ballerina in American Ballet Theater, Isabel Brown, in many ways on her life. And, yeah, the turning point is terrific. Uh, and the red shoes. Look how oh, great the red, the red shoes, shoes of course, is. Yeah. Go see a movie called Every Little Step. It's about chorus line. Right, I've heard of that. Worth seeing. You have two children, uh, Christopher, who's now a choreographer, yeah. and Charlotte. Who and Charlotte. Is, I she have still, actually, is she still acting? Actually, I have four children. Yeah. George is in Boulder, Colorado, and George is nothing but a nurturer. And Christopher, who can sit next to the clarinetist in a New York City Ballet Orchestra and in six weeks has his repertoire. He married a beautiful girl, Kelly, who's become a sommelier. She tells you what kind of wine, right? And he's a performer. And Charlotte, of course, is the Broadway babe. And Catherine, who went into early childhood, there is no one better to give your child to 
to have joy in that child's life. And she works mostly with three to five-year-olds in Santa Fe. I, I assume you still go to the ballet, or can't you? Very, very seldom. And how about, how about Broadway seldom. when Charlotte isn't performing? Not the shows that she's in. I saw she was Roxy Hot in right. Chicago. I saw it 180 times. In Chorus Line, about 90 times. In Yan- Damn Yankees, probably about 20-something times. Same with Cats. And I, I've become a groupie. But would I go see those shows without her? No, not. Do you do much choreography? These not days? enough, but I just did two works. I did one to Judy Collins' song, my father always promised me that we would live in France. We would sail along the Seine, and I would learn to dance. I did a little dance to that. And then I did one. It was premiered in Santa Fe at NDI in Santa Fe called Puella Touches the Sun. Puella is girl woman, teenager. And this girl is a sacrifice like Ariadne and the Minotaur, and right? They take the young virgin and they prepare her, they crown her with flowers, and they offer her to the gods. And in this case, it's the sun. And she reaches up in the very end, held in the air, way up on the hands, balanced on the hands of four men. She reaches up with her hands to touch the sun, this glowing light, and her hands start shimmering, right? She's wearing secretly gloves with sequins that you didn't see her put on. But anyway, that's Stravinsky's music. I have to get back to classical ballet, doing more choreography. I miss it. I have to get back to it. And do you plan on writing any more books? Yes. Forty years ago, I wrote a thriller about a court of ballet girl on the premiere of the Ballet Jewels and murder and you know, sex everywhere and write a real thriller. And I worked with a guy, John... Carol or something. He, he's gone now. He died. But he used to write for San Francisco Chronicle. And we started to work together and then it didn't happen. And I put it away. And I'm going to bring it back because I can write that. I can write that because I, I know how those girls feel. Jacques Dumbois, right now in the United States, there's an effort by the right wing to end arts funding. It's my feeling, of course, that arts funding should never end and should be increased. What are your perspectives? Okay. Every organism, virus, bacteria, whales, elephant, redwood trees, they all need nutrition, shelter, and water. Every life form. Okay. Are we trees? Are we whales? Are we bacteria? I think... We evolved out of them, but we can do something that nobody else seems to do. We all dream, other mammals dream, but we can sit freezing in our cave and see a bear go by and think, I'd like to have that warm fur, and then figure out how we get it. We can look at the moon and think, it would be nice to walk up there, and we figure out how to do it. We seem to be able to manipulate our environment to make our dreams come true, and what makes us human? Is it food, shelter, and water? That makes us still functioning. But there are three things that I believe that illustrate humanity. The ability to look at the stars and wonder how beautiful they are, and in that wonder of emotion, start to sing and dance in honor of it. 
the arts to express our emotions. And then, oh, look at those stars. Are they fires? Are they hot? What makes hot? Science, the wonder. I wonder how it works. I wonder what it is. I wonder if I can recreate it. So it's two legs that make us human. And the third leg, play. We've invented games that no one can imagine. Games that transform our minds, our bodies. The tennis player with one arm bigger, the gymnast body, the swimmer, the porpoise bodies of the swimmers. And to play games. And what's the purpose of it? They're rehearsals for life. You either compete and collaborate or you don't succeed in your game. I think that play is necessary for evolution as a human. I think that science is necessary for evolution as a human. And I think our arts are necessary for evolution as a human. And they're all summed up with this word wonder. We don't stop our sports. We do stop our science. We don't really do what we should. And we certainly stop our arts. We're maiming three legs of our body, leaving only one, sports. And even then, that's cheating it because they try to make money out of it and exploit those poor people. It's a long answer, but you have to have all of them. And to be human, you need those three, play, science, and arts. You've been listening to an interview with the great dancer Jacques D'Amboise, who died at the age of 88 on May 2, 2021, following complications from a stroke. He appeared as one of the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and as the male dancer in the second act ballet and carousel in those respective 1950s films. Both Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Carousel can be rented from Apple TV, Amazon, and several streaming services, and you can find examples of his work on YouTube. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.